uh, years ago, there was a lady who, by the way, how do you do with temptation? You do okay with that? You all right with temptation? We need any help with that? Uh, I'm going to give you up anyway. Um, <clears throat> this lady decided that she needed to kind of go on a diet and, you know, kind of cut back on some things. And the problem with that was donuts was her favorite breakfast food. And uh, she went through this ongoing process and she said, okay, I need to diet and what, you know, I don't want to set a diet goal that I know I can't reach. And so what can I do? So she decided that uh, one of the primary things that she was going to give up in her diet was donuts. Uh, the problem with that was she also had a routine that was just part of it. That's what usually goes for us. You change routine, you get, you know, on top of the other stuff. But part of her routine was on her way to work every day, she would stop off at this little coffee shop close to where her office office was, and she would sit there and have a cup of coffee and a donut. Uh, She still needed the coffee. Matter of fact, she thought she needed the coffee more because she wasn't getting the donuts. And so one particular day, she woke up, she was struggling with this. All right, I'm just going to go in the coffee shop, and I'm going to get me some coffee, uh, and then I'll go on to the office. I'll sit there and drink a cup of coffee, and then I'll go to the office. So she goes in. She sits down. First of all, it's crowded. And it's like way crowded in there. And there's one of those little tables with two chairs uh, separated from the rest. So she sits down. It's the last table available. She sits down. There's one chair. And sure enough, within 30 seconds, another guy comes up and says, Do you mind if I sit with you? There's no other place. She said, That's fine. So she's sitting there drinking her coffee, trying to get the day started. And this guy reaches into the sack and he pulls out two big donuts and a cup of coffee. And so she's sitting there drinking her coffee thinking, man, God, you put this guy right in front of me with these donuts and it's not right, and, but I'm going to be strong. And so she just kind of you know, focuses in on it and she's drinking her coffee and this guy just hammers one of those donuts. And he sits there for a while and the other one's sitting on the table and and he catches her every once in a while. She glances at the donut and then she'd take a drink of her coffee. You know how that goes. Well, in a little bit, she's doing pretty well. She's kind of settled into this and she's holding on. She's starting to feel strong even though the tug is there, you know. And uh, so directly, the guy gets up with his cup and he walks out. Or it looks like he walks out. He at least walks away from the table. And she notices that he left that other donut sitting right there. And now the battle's on. She's thinking to herself, it's just one donut. And it's already sitting there. It's going to go to waste. We don't want it to go to waste. And she has this inner battle that lasts for about, I don't know, three seconds. And finally she gives in and she reaches over. She grabs that donut and she goes to take a bite. She takes one of those I've been living in a concentration camp for three years kind of bite. <laughs> and she just stuffs half of it into her mouth. And as she sets the other half down, she noticed the guy coming back around with his second cup of coffee. <laughs> so how do you do with temptation? And just how public is your failure at temptation handling? A couple of weeks ago, I had a chance to sit down with one of my mentors. I love this guy to death. He's probably approaching 80 now, and his life is very, very difficult these days. And uh, one of the wisest men I know, and 
uh, lots of experience to go with it and always stories to tell. And we were talking about church life and he was wanting to know how things were going here and uh, some of the challenges of the two years that I've been here and some of that kind of stuff. And so we're talking through it and it never fails with him. His name is Don. And every time I sit down to talk to him and talk about a real life situation, he pulls up stories from the past and he's extremely well educated, extremely well seasoned in life. And um, he has a, uh, a doctorate in education, particularly in the psychology, the counseling side of it all. And uh, so he started telling me in reference to some stuff. I don't know about a study that was done coming out of World War II in England. And the study particularly involved children, or they were adults by this time, but they had been children during the bombing and the rocket attacks that Germany launched on London. And particularly, the psychologists wanted to see, as these who had been children during the time of the bombings, how they had adjusted in life later on with the, those uncertainties and the attacks and the incoming bombs uh, and rockets of the World War II there in London. How did they make the transition into being adults? Were they well-adjusted, normal adults? Now, they noticed as they started this process, according to my friend Don, that uh, first of all, there were two sets of people in this study. There were those who were adults who had been children during the Blitzkrieg and all, who when their parents started living through the bombing, took their kids and for safety's sake, moved them out into the countryside of England. And they had a handful of people, adults, who would take care of them, but the, their parents and all would stay behind and they would just send their kids out into these uh, safe zones out in the country. So that when all of the bombing of London occurred, uh, those kids were safe. They didn't have to worry about being bombed. Now the expectation of the study was that those kids would be well adjusted because they didn't have to fight uh, for survival and that kind of stuff. The second group that surfaced in this study were the group of kids, the parents who didn't have the money to send their kids out like that. And so when those bombings hit, they all went into the subways for safety's sake. They expected those kids to be traumatized that stretched from their childhood all the way into their adulthood, that they just, you know, life was so haphazard and so temporary and that, that would have set in on them that they would not be well-adjusted adults. But the study found just the opposite. They found that those kids who had become adults, who had gone into the subways uh, for shelter during those bombings, those kids were the ones who were more well-adjusted than any of the rest. The ones who'd gone to the countryside were uncertain in life and they always were looking for connections because it never seemed to come for them. And these psychologists traced it back and here was their basic finding. The kids who went through the bombings of England in World War II, down in the subways were better off because down in those subways they had their parents and they had other adults who would pull them close to them during the midst of those bombings and say, you're going to be okay. We're going to make it through this. Everything's going to be all right. The kids in the countryside didn't have that. They just had absent parents. Now here's what I want you to take from both of those two stories as I begin this morning. 
If you know attacks are coming, do the right thing. But you see, most people in our world, especially Christians I'm talking about now, we kind of take this thing of temptation and we know that the attacks are coming and sometimes we just think we can do something. Actually, we kind of think we can do anything in the name of resisting temptation and we'll be okay. But history is full of examples of people who just did something but it didn't happen to be the right thing or even the best thing and they didn't do too well because of that. That hits on us at the point of temptation because I could poll this audience this morning and get different answers on the proper way to handle temptation. Now, I go back to one of my favorite preachers of yesterday. Now, I know he still does this, but uh, one of my favorite preachers of years gone by is a guy by the name of Stephen Curtis Chapman. And uh, he preaches through the lyrics of his songs most of the time, but some of the best, deepest theology I've found in my life happens to be some of his music. Here's what he said many, many years ago in the name of a song, or the name of the song is called Runaway, but here's what he says. Strolling past Temptation Avenue, you hear so many voices calling you. Maybe you'll step in and take a quick look around. Try to walk through it and you're going to fall down. And so here's his counsel to us when facing temptation. you got to run away. Turn around. Run the other way. Don't even look in the direction of a thought you should not entertain, he says. Well, is that good theology? Well, some of us would say, yeah, we go to that passage says resist the devil and he'll flee from you and uh, some of the other ones that we know of and is that good theology I'd say yeah it probably is good theology but that pragmatic side of me that part of me that hates organized religion because of those simplistic sounding things like that that part of me says but why run away Why should we resist temptation? Take your Bibles and go with me to Luke chapter 4. Now, this is a two-part sermon, okay? And uh, I'll just be really straight up and honest and transparent with you right now. Uh, What I'm going to do today is a little bit unorthodox on this particular passage. I hope that you're starting to get a little bit used to me being unorthodox on some of the things we do here. Uh, But in the truest sense of the definition, I want to be orthodox in that we always want to have good, solid, biblical base for the theology that we live out. And in this case, I think there's something in this passage relative to your Christian life and facing temptation that maybe gets overlooked most of the time. This is the account, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through uh, 13, is the account that we find in Luke's gospel about Jesus and the temptations. Now, we find this in other gospels. Uh, There's a little bit of difference between the way Matthew puts it out and Luke puts it out. Mark just kind of highlights it quickly. But let's read through this quickly, and I'll just tell you now, I'm going to show you... uh, that there are four different temptations that are occurring here. You keep track as we you know, and count, in other words, as we go. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. 
And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And it is also written, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Okay, now how many did you count there? How many temptations did Jesus face? I already told you my answer. It's four. Did you find all four of them? Now see, the orthodox answer for us is there's three. And there are three there. But there's another one that I think is the umbrella under which these three hang. All right? In other words, this is the temptation that is common to all temptations. And I find it here particularly in the way Jesus answers Satan and the temptation that he brings to him. Because particularly in each of these three instances, and we'll look at them in detail next week one by one, but for today I want to give you this fourth one. I want you to see the umbrella, the bigger picture of it all. And as Jesus answers each of these three, he answers them or him out of the book of Deuteronomy. Now, I don't have the time this morning even to give you a quick run through the book of Deuteronomy. Let me just say it this way. It's the final run through, if you will, the rehearsal that Moses gives to the children of Israel before Moses exits the scene and they begin to move into uh, the promised land. And in the book of Deuteronomy, we find some of the key teachings that God gives to the children of Israel on how they will be in relationship with him, that is, with God. As they go into the promised land, at the outset, on the, on, on the edges of that, they look backwards and God brings them through Moses all the way through this rehearsal of what he had done for them and he walks them through right up to the point where they're standing there ready to go forward and they're hit with the question, where's God going to be in our future? And in that, the book of Deuteronomy keeps coming back to these are the rules of the relationship. It is significant that in each of these three responses that Jesus gives, all of them are tied in the book of Deuteronomy and all of them are tied to this idea of relationship. There are a couple of misconceptions I want to highlight very quickly here. Uh, Misconceptions that we bring to this text. Now, here's the first one. The first one seems to be (laughs) that we want to handle temptation in a very simplistic manner. I really need you to listen with both ears here, okay? Uh, Because if you're going to call me a heretic, at least quote me right when you're doing it, okay? 
One of the misconceptions, this simplistic approach to handling temptation that we often get is if we'll just quote scripture, we'll get through the temptation. Now hear me say this, okay? If you're being tempted about something, there's a verse that'll help you and it won't hurt you to quote it, okay? Everybody got that? Because that does away with the heresy claim right there. The problem is that we often want to use memorized scripture as if it's the lamp, that if we just rub the lamp, the genie will pop out and everything will be fine. But what I want you to see from this passage is that Jesus used scripture to respond. We'll talk about that more next week. But Satan knows scripture too. And Satan took scripture and matter of fact, he took some important scripture in Jewish messianic expectations. He throws it on the table and he says essentially to Jesus, okay, you want to quote scripture? What do you do with this? Jesus is smarter than we are. Don't let that offend you. That's a compliment to you, okay? And especially to him. What we find Jesus doing here is answering the specific temptation from Scripture. That's instructive for us. But underneath this umbrella is the real truth of why that's effective in handling temptation. If your tendency is to just be faced... What's a common temptation that people face? Where would we go find some common temptation? You know where I find it? Behind the wheel of my car. I get tempted to do all manner of evil when I start driving around town. It's not so much Lumberton, although there's some idiots here when it comes to driving. I'm talking, you go to Beaumont, and man, it's like somebody left the gate open from the idiot farm driving. Now, just that statement might be sinful. If I really meant those people were idiots, you think that honors God and that fits with what God says is the standard for how we're supposed to see people? Man, I get behind the car and I start... That, oh. You know the sin that you love to love? You know the one I'm talking about? It's the one that you love to do. Hebrews, I think it is, calls it the sin that so easily besets us. It's the one that you love to do. Yesterday, and kind of pointing your thinking towards this, those of you who have Twitter or Facebook and I'm on it, uh, I, I pushed out this thing to get you thinking about it. Uh, the question is, do you find yourself falling into temptation or do you jump at the chance to sin? That sin that we love to love, that's the one we jump at. We love that one. But other things... They hit us and we know that I can't do that. But I, I keep coming back to the why of that. Why can't you do that? Because that's the way Satan approaches me. You know, man, it's not that big a deal. Just run one person off the road. It's not that big a deal. They deserve it anyway. Now, if you're a police officer, I'm joking, okay? Don't follow me around. It's all good. So, this misconception, I think, from here is because Jesus uses Scripture, then we think that all we have to do is use Scripture. 
but we lose the why of that. Why, why should we avoid the temptation or the sin in the first place? Why not just give in to it? And, and so here's what I want you to see from this on the using scripture part. Jesus gets this bigger umbrella. These three temptations hang underneath that very well. But here's the big one. The reason not to give in to temptation is because when you do that, you break your fellowship with God. Let me say that again. When you or I decide, all right, I'm all in on this sin, temptation has done its thing, and we jump. Just like that, we are in broken fellowship with Christ. I need to explain a couple of things about that, but let me show you where I get this in this passage. Look at verse 1 again. I want you to notice, in verse 1, we find two references to the Holy Spirit. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. I'm just going to mention the first miscon- or the, the other misconception here because it all fits together and this is where I'm telling you I'm getting that fourth temptation that's really the big one here. <clears throat> we often get the misconception here that Jesus is weak at this time. That after 40 days of fasting that he's weak. But what does scripture say technically there? Does it say Jesus was weak after 40 days of not eating? It just says he's hungry. Now, hello, I've been 40 minutes since I ate and I'm hungry. How are you going to be after 40 days of not eating? All right, but here's what I want you to get. Now, one of the reasons this is so popular, this Jesus is weak here, um, is because we misunderstand what fasting is. Most of the time as we use it in our world today, it's tied to some of those Old Testament uses of repentance. And so we fast as a way of saying, God, this is how serious I am about the sin that I've committed. And and it's a way of connecting there. It's a repentance kind of thing. Another thing is a way of mourning in the Old Testament. Something happens and they, you know, it's a way of just, you know, stopping life and saying everything's not the same anymore because of this. And, you know, so the repentance, mourning, that goes together. But one of the key ways that we find fasting as it's pulled into our life is intended to be a way of focusing in. It's to deny the worldly part of us in favor of the spiritual connection with the Holy God. You ever been so busy doing something that you forgot to eat? Now I'll give you a profile view and you tell me you think I've ever been like that? I've been like that, not very often, and I try to be careful not to get like that, but sometimes we can get so locked in. I did this when I was doing graduate work. They gave, we were in class all day long, one class, had to be there the next morning at 8 o'clock, and they gave us an evening assignment. I went from class straight to the library, and that was like at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Got there at 5.30, started working. I didn't even blink an eye, and I looked at my watch, and it was midnight. And I thought to myself, I've missed three meals since I've been in here. But you see, the idea of fasting, and particularly the way I believe it's used in this passage, it's a way of pushing aside the normal in favor of fellowship with God. 
So I'm back to verse 1. Jesus was full of the Spirit, it says. And the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he didn't eat for 40 days. What was he doing for 40 days? We know that the fasting was not because of mourning. We know that the fasting was not because of repentance because he never needed to repent. So the only thing that leaves us with is this fasting that Jesus was doing was because he was connecting. After all, he's about to begin his whole public ministry for which he was born in the first place. I don't believe this was Jesus' weakest moment. I believe that just this was probably Jesus' one of his strongest moments because he was totally connected with God in this. That gets me to that other one. Back to that one for a second. Connected. Full of the Spirit. Strong. Why would Jesus, if he was at that level of fellowship with his father at this point, why would he even be remotely interested in doing something that would break that fellowship? You ever had a moment like that with God? A moment here is relative. It could be like you know a church service or a part of a church service or a whole season of your life where you it felt like you were camped out at heaven's gates, so close to God. His whisper in your ear sounded like a peal of thunder in your spirit. You had those times? Those times when you it didn't matter if everybody in the world said God was not real you would have fought him for that because you knew that you knew deep within you he's real, he's alive, and I'm connected with him. I happen to believe that one of the reasons our world doesn't think too much of Christians is because we've let that part of our spiritual lives just go away. And so in favor, excuse me, rather than appealing to that in our own lives, we just kind of adopt this nice little genie in a lamp approach to God. But you know, Jesus Christ came and paid the price so that you and I could have a genuine relationship with God. That was broken. It wasn't even possible after what happened in the Garden of Eden. God created Adam and Eve for fellowship, for a relationship. Sin broke that. And from that point forward, we see God moving through history to reestablish what he created man for, which was a relationship with himself. That was accomplished through Jesus Christ on the cross, resurrection, praise God. The ability to have a relationship with God has been covered for us. And if you know Jesus Christ and you've trusted him, and what I just got through explaining in about a one breath, if, if you put your faith in him as the only acceptable sacrifice for sin who makes it possible for you to have a relationship with God, if you believe that, Scripture says you have a relationship with God. Back to what I quoted last week, First John chapter 3, I think it's verse 1. How incredible a privilege it is for us to be called the children of God. That's a relationship statement. Sitting over here somewhere is my daughter. 
if I die before this sermon's over, tomorrow she'll still be my daughter. Right? She could legally distance herself from me, but biologically, that relationship is established. Right? Everybody with me? It's important that you get this. Because as Christian people, when we accept Christ, our relationship is established. Our problem is that we hold to the relationship and we easily walk away from the fellowship. And here's how that looks. Lauren's my daughter. And if she'll play her cards right, that's not a very preachery kind of way to say it, I guess. If she handles herself well, we'll stay in good fellowship and I might even buy her a tank of gas. Or groceries. Or whatever. I might even let her visit my house every once in a while. But she's going to have to handle herself well. Now, that's pushing it a little bit, but Here's, the, here's how that comes out in our regular lives. You guys, some of y'all are married, all right? Some of you are wishing you could be. Some of you are wondering, how am I going to stay married? Okay, let me tell you. Let me help you with the last one, okay? Work on your fellowship with your wife. The relationship is there. If you stood before a preacher like me or a justice of the peace or somebody, and that guy said to you, yes, you are married. That relationship is there, but how many hundreds of thousands of people in America today have a relationship of being married but no fellowship in the marriage? You see the difference between those two terms? And Jesus in relationship with his heavenly father, we saw that at the baptism, steps out of that being pushed by the Holy Spirit, being full of the Holy Spirit, walks out into the wilderness for this full period of time, 40 days it says, and everything about him in that 40 days is tied in and focused in on fellowship with his heavenly father in preparation for all that's going to come after that. And it's in that scenario that Satan steps up and says, you know what, if you'll just worship me, I'll give you all of this stuff. Why would Jesus in his right mind choose to walk away from the fellowship that he had in favor of a pipe dream of authority? You know what I love about that passage? I'll say this again next week probably. Satan tips his hand in that one uh, temptation. He says, all this has been given to me. Well, if you're all powerful, then how come somebody had to give it to you? See, Jesus knows that. And he's already in fellowship with the one who gave it for a period of time. Why would he step away from that? So if you're the donut lady, and you're sitting there today, and you're thinking of your temptation, the sin that so easily besets you, and you're trying to work up, well, give me a verse that I can quote. It ain't about the verse. It's about the Lord who says, I love you. I want you to be close to me. The verse helps. It's his word anyway. 
But don't substitute the relationship and the fellowship that comes with it just because you like to quote a verse. The way to win against temptation, ultimately, first and foremost, is that you know the bomb's coming. And so you hunker down and you draw close to the heart of the one who says to you, it's going to be all right. We're going to get through this. God himself pulls you to his chest and says, I got you in this. So don't walk away from it. Temptation is just given the opportunity to say, God, I got it. That's dumb. Whatever else you want to call it, that's just dumb. So don't. Let's pray. Lord, this is an easier said than done kind of thing for us. So help us, give us something that will help us remember just how serious it is when we choose. My prayer for each of us today is that you would so impress upon us the seriousness of the fellowship with you that it will help us to to want to go deeper with you, not walk away from you. And if we're locked up in that religious, zealot kind of life that just stands and fights over cliches, but there's no heart in it, we pray that you would help us to see that, that we'd walk away from that and walk right into the arms of grace and all the love that you bring to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.